Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. I'm Sasha Wolf and this week on the panel we have Alan Weimar. Hello. And Adi Eingar. Hello. And we have no guests this week. It's a pure panelist episode and we wanted to, to talk about when not to use Elixir. Because usually we always rave about, okay, Elixir is so great and you should use it in all the places and every time. But there are actually scenarios in which Elixir might not be such a great and I think it's worth talking about those. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So maybe let's start off with that. I mean, I know, for example, that you, Alan, you're a big fan of Rust. So I guess you're not always using Elixir. <laughs> so maybe you could talk a bit about that. Like when are you using Rust? When are you using Elixir? And why? Well, I can make it very clear, right? A super clear distinction of when I'm not going to be using Elixir is when I'm building mobile apps. So I spent a lot of my time recently building, working with Flutter, right? I don't think you can build any kind of mobile apps with Elixir nowadays. I haven't heard of anything, but that's definitely a use case, right? So when you're very, very platform specific, this kind of thing, you cannot, there's ways around that, but in the end, you can't build like a native app with that, at least for mobile devices. But I think you can do something with desktop Right, they have like the what is that called? Uh, what is, I forgot the heck name of that one. It's called Bake something. Baked. Isn't there an Elixir desktop library? There might also yeah, be they, one they too. It's really There's an Elixir desktop library. Yeah, but yeah. there's no mobile one, right? So that's a big one. Another one too that came to my mind is like if I'm going to do like a quick script, I wouldn't write it in Elixir usually, or some kind of CLI app. Yes, you can do eScript. I've done eScript before. I've done a CLI with eScript. I think there's much better, and I really hate Python with a passion, but I think Python has pretty decent CLI support. They have like that built-in like op parser and everything. It's pretty decent. So that would be something I would probably reach for. Also, and talk about Rust. I had to <laughs> I had to ditch sweet XML because it was doing such a bad job. Parsing XML in Elixir or Erlang is really, really bad. It's really bad, really slow. And I flipped it to uh, I use Rustler with Rust and it went from 10 minutes down to 10 seconds. So it was really worth it. Yeah, but, but then we also get into the whole interesting scenario of like, okay, maybe you're still using Elixir, but he's having some parts of your application not using Elixir. I'm not sure if you want to go down that, that rabbit hole just right now. <laughs> because I, I also think like something you said earlier with like the UI and mobile programming is like a very, very good point. I think in general, you could say like any kind of like native UI kind of programming with some exceptions to that. Like, I mean, there's, for example, there's Scenic, which, but the mostly, is mostly more designed about like um, fixed resolution kind of displays, right? So for like in the scenario where you have maybe like an embedded device with like a display, there Scenic is pretty great. And there's, it's also great that you don't need to reach out to something else, like where you can build your embedded device with nerves and then have something like Scenic. But if you have any kind of scenario where you want to build like a native native experience, then yeah, like Elixir, like like like, like I said, like there is Elixir desktop, but I think that's also has been born from a desire of okay, we already have all that Elixir code. So now we don't want to use something else. But if you're starting on a greenfield, I would definitely not go with Elixir to build like a UI experience. And that's just actually looked it up. Like you can use Elixir desktop also for iOS and Android devices. Like it's supported, which is interesting. Probably should get I get the guy who wrote that on the, on the show, Dominic Letts, but he also was on another uh, podcast, Elixir, Elixir Talk. I don't know if I forgot. So there, there are some some episodes with him out there. So yeah, your eye programming is certainly right up there with uh, Elixir not being the first choice. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned Flutter because I mean Flutter is also not the native choice for platforms, right? Like it's 
Like if you want to build native iOS app, you use Swift or Objective-C if it's like an all code base. Well, hold on a second. Flutter does compile down to native code. It is actually native, but it's not, of course, not using all the native yeah. stuff like Swift, et cetera, but it is actually native, right? It's not like an emulation on top or... Yeah, that's true, but it's also like it's shipping with its own stuff then always, right? Like its own... Yeah, it has library. its own rendering framework, but then in that case, you can't say... You can, if you build an app with Qt, you can't say it's native, right? If you're using C to build a desktop app, you can't say it's native then, can you? If you're going to take that kind of route, right? So definition of native is kind of a yeah, little bit what saying. Okay, like, hairy. What would be the, the good term then there? Like, I mean, you, you, you guess, I guess you know what I mean when I say native, right? Like, I guess you would say it's not using like the preferred SDK or yeah, something probably. like that. That would be yeah. the way to maybe say it. Yeah, yeah. Wait, wait. So in that case, I should use this. There we go. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> okay. And like another thing you, you said, it's like with, with CLIs. And there's actually a pretty good reason why you might not want to use Elixir for CLS. Like if you have a one-off script, I think the experience there is great, especially now with mix install, you can use in scripts and then also have dependencies. But there's the startup time of the Beam, right? Like the Beam has a fixed startup time. Like it takes a while for a Beam to start. It's not a, it's not a lot. But if you have like a CLI tool, which I don't know, like you, for example, invoke hundreds of times inside of a script you write, then that's going to add up. And that's going to add up quite significantly. And so your CLI tool will always be slower than something you write in Ruby or something you write in Rust or something you write in whatever because you basically can't get rid of it. So yeah. CLIs, yeah, I mean, I you do also get the JIT, right, with 24, OTP24. And you don't get JIT if you're going to have a one-off script that just runs for a second yeah. and goes offline, right? So you're kind of missing some power in here. In that case, you want to keep it running and then just have some kind of gen server or cron or something kind of running at the same time, which would make much more sense. But like, if you're going to do just like a one-off, like I need to just sort these files in order, and then that's that's I'm done. Like I, I don't think I'd want to write an Elixir script to do that. Not because I don't like Elixir, but just because it just feels like not the proper domain to me when I write Elixir. Right when I write Elixir, like I'm ready to like anything could happen. That's like my mindset when I do Elixir. Right, you start up your app, and then you're just waiting for events or messages to come in from whatever way. When you're doing a one-off script, you're just like, okay, do A, B, C, turn off. That's my mindset when I go that route. I've actually used Elixir for one-off scripts. Like recently, there was okay. Just to give some context, like I, I ran like a community organized tournament thingy in like a video game I'm playing, and then I had to basically determine like to draw a random winner based on some criteria. If you played more matches, you were more likely to actually win this prize, right? And I had like a file, like I dropped the leaderboard basically into a file, then I literally used the links like, to, to read that in, split it, re- increase the number of occurrences of a player based on matches, and then randomly draw a player. And I did that because I know Elixir best, but that's then the point. Like I, I also know some Ruby, but I know Elixir better. Like I started learning Ruby after Elixir because I started in a shop, which was using Ruby, but also Elixir. But at that point, I already had Elixir experience. So Elixir is like my, my bread and butter day-to-day programming language, basically. So writing that one-off script, I could have done that in Ruby, but I was just quicker to do it in Elixir. And I think that's what it boils down to. Like, you can use Elixir pretty nicely for scripts nowadays, but it's also not necessarily the best choice for that. The experience is pretty neat around that now, especially with mix install, so you can use dependencies. But if you're more comfortable with Ruby in that kind of situation, sure, go with it. I mean, you don't get all the cool benefits the Beam brings you in writing a script anyway. So whatever floats your boat there. But what would yeah, be think- a cool benefit of a one-off script? Sorry, that, that I just, in my head, like what's like the benefit that Elixir brings you in a one-off script where you're just doing something kind of, kind of small? For me, it's just convenience. Like I, I know the standard library in and out. I, I know how to do things. So it was, I was just quicker with the script writing in Elixir than something else. Okay, fair enough. Sorry, Adi, go ahead. Yeah, I was actually going to say, like, my go-to language for scripts is Ruby. Just with Elixir, yeah, even with mix install, it's not as simple as just, like, requiring an already installed version of Gem and then just to start working on your stuff. Having to define a function inside of modules, I mean, again, we can, like, talk about all the constraints that Elixir comes with just the way it's like compiled but yeah ruby is like definitely like more built for scripting and seeing a cli i actually in 2017 i was like 
I was trying out these like a bunch of Linux distros, right? And I was like, uh, I having to set up my computer again and again. And I like, oh, I'll make like an automation script. I actually built uh, this Elixir package. It's actually open source. So it's, it's called Artify. But what it does is it installs all these tools and like prepares a computer. But I used Elixir to do that. Terrible choice. Terrible choice. <laughs> <laughs> now I have to maintain it because I still use it today and everyone in my company still uses it. But it's... Yeah, I I should have picked something else, and it was it was a pain at that time. They didn't even have I think a I think now they have a system dot shell function, which allows you to run just any function. I think Elixir didn't even have that. Erlang uh, might have, but I think it, all it had was command, and you can only run like you know command in a specific way. You cannot just run like a shell script, right? So uh, at that time, Elixir was even even. <laughs> worse than it is right now for like apps like that like uh devopsy uh yeah uh rust would have been a much better choice uh for that yeah, i've always wanted to get like my my hands on doing more rust programming but day has only 24 hours and i have kids and like a wife and like responsibilities <laughs> and like a job yeah i think one more thing actually because you brought this up sasha actually just rust uh, i don't know so i think from my experience other rust learning curve was a lot lesser than elixir it might feel like you're starting to do stuff in elixir sooner because the syntax is simpler and stuff but once you actually start into processes which i feel like you have to to build an app on your own like any useful app i feel it's a lot easier like to like get used to like rust's uh fundamentals than like elixir and i think elixir's learning curve to become like a intermediate or senior engineer in elixir i think it's a lot harder I don't know if you guys agree here. I know some people have the opposite <laughs> belief than this. I actually like I have done some Rust, but like never really had the time to like get to the point of like okay, now I feel I can actually reasonably tackle things I I'm out, I sent out and out, out to do right. And and there I my, my experience was that actually more like stumbling blocks in Rust because then it, you, you might want to do something a certain way you used from another language and when the compiler tells you like, no, no, you can't do that. You're like, but why? <laughs> why compiler? Why won't you let me do that? <laughs> but it does tell you that, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like if, if you don't really get the whole borrowing and like lifetime thing, it's like, it's cryptic. It's super cryptic. It's like, you yeah. can't do that because of that reason. And like, but I don't understand that reason. <laughs> and like that was my experience of Rust. And I'm not saying like that it's, this is bad, right? Like I'm just saying it's it's like a new way you you have to consider to talk about memory management and, and think about memory management, think about ownership. But when right. you're not used to that, it's like it's weird. It's the same, I guess, in Elixir. Like when when you don't are really used about the whole process thinking and the concurrency thing. But I feel like when you stay in the world from path, and we talked about that in the past, like for example, building a Phoenix app, it takes way longer until you get to the point of like, okay, what the fuck is actually happening here? Yeah, I, and I think just to, since you touched on the processes, I feel like another common mistake that I see people doing is just abusing the fact that it's so easy to create processes. There's like dangling processes, process exit, errors are not caught in every process. And like, I mean, unsupervised processes are like a hellhole in Elixir, right? Like it's just, just a, especially for someone who doesn't understand like how to spawn them and how to manage them. And it's very easy to do that in Elixir. It's very easy to just get away with like just, hey, enum.map task.async, right? And then just very easy to get away with like spawning all those tasks and not having to necessarily catch the errors and like properly propagating them to the, the group leader, right? So no, uh, yeah, I think that's um, at least Rust compiler tells you, hey, this, you know, lifetime or memory leak, whatever, it tells you like what to do, right? But Elix, there's no way in Elixir to like flag that. Yes, I think, you, I think you're right about that. Like there is some anti-patterns you can do like a task as in just like that but the docs basically don't talk about it like it's like you can also just invoke start link on like processes and like usually unless you are literally like i don't know like building a supervisor that's probably a bad idea <laughs> but like i don't think i've ever seen it in the docs like yes you can do that but better do this over there and arguably yeah i, I, I get what you're saying so like you you're basically saying that the the Entry and the the hurdle to get good with Elixir is higher, but also that like the platform and the language doesn't really help you with, uh, in avoiding these mistakes, right? Or rather, it could help you more. It, it they they do a lot to help, but I think it's like limited with like the capabilities of the language itself, right? The compiler isn't like Rust's compiler is just used to more information. I mean, if I could use the word, it's a little superior. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. I guess the, the docs could also be more specific about that. They could, for example, say on Starlink, right. like, hey, you can do that, but unless you understand the implications of what it means to start a process about this being supervised, better not. I mean, that's like one call-out thing you could do. Like, hey, unless you understand what it, what it means to start a process unsupervised, better not do this. Yeah, but I yeah, so that's when you need to bring in something called a linter, right? But that, I mean, I'm I'm just thinking for a long time. Like, it, I guess it kind of makes sense that yeah, when you first start with Rust, it is really difficult, but then later on it gets easier. And yeah, the opposite with Elixir, right? It's pretty easy to build some site with Phoenix, but then when you want to do some more interesting, more OTP things, they do take a long time to pick up because it's really nothing like like it used to be, right? It's really crazy. I never thought about it like that, and I, and I think actually. Elixir and Erlang is, they're really complicated if you compare it to like other things, like spinning up processes and then linking them and catching this and, and not, not catching errors, but like catching what they call, what's they call the entrapping exits, how a supervisor works. Like, yeah, Erlang is very, very simple language, but the patterns that you create to make OTP, those things are super complicated, I think. Like, yeah. there's so many things that can go wrong, but I have to say, for sure. I'm happy I picked up Elixir because it's definitely changed my whole entire mindset as a programmer. And I think that makes me look like a better programmer. And I'll tell you why. Because I find myself going to meetings, talking to other software developers, and I always ask, what if this fails? Or what if that fails? That's my first few questions is, what if these things fail? And those are like the last on these guys' minds. And it's just amazing. Like, I don't know why that is. Like, And it's funny because it's like, as Elixir developers, we always say, let it fail. But even if that happens, like, okay, if it does fail, we let it fail. But what should we do? Should we restart yeah, exactly. it? In this case I'm talking about particularly was when I was working on a cryptocurrency trading system. If a trade gets lost or fails, like, do we need to retry it? Do we give up? Because some of these trades you want to make are like, they're, they're very, they're timed, right? So if you don't send them within a certain amount of time, they're basically useless. Or sometimes you, you buy them, like you say, okay, buy X amount of like Ripple at this price. I think it's called like a market, market buy or something. Which you basically dictate them what price you're willing to buy it and then they'll make the order for you automatically once it hits that range. So it's really like, it really makes you think. Like that's the really the big thing I want to talk about. Yeah, if failure is a lot more present and a lot more upfront in, in the Elixir community than the community because it, like, it, it forces you to think about the thing. Okay, like what, what if it fails, right? Like, And by doing that and by embracing failure, basically, OTP has like a certain number of patterns to actually deal very, very elegantly with failure because most of the time starting it new is, is a pretty good way to go forward. <laughs> but at least should consider these the failure states your application can end up in. And I actually like, um, since we talked a lot about now Rust and Elixir, uh, like another thing I put down on my list of like situations when you not might want to use Elixir is uh, pure number crunching. And pure number crunching is actually something the Beam is pretty bad at. Like if you really have a situation where you need to calculate lots of things in like a very intense manner, then Beam is not the right way to go forward there. And then actually, for example, something like Rust could be just uh, the right uh, tool for the job. And if, I think in these situations, a tool like Rustler, like if you already have an existing Elixir application, can help you a lot with like getting the performance you need while still retaining most or all of the benefits the Beam brings you. But if you, for example, I don't know, like, I don't know, build like a GPU driver or something, like there's no good reason to pick Elixir even as like a rep application. Just stick to something else. Yeah, I mean, bring in, or, you know, like maybe you want to bring some Elixir to your app, right? You can't bring a GC language to another GC language and even a GC language to a non-GC language, right? Like you don't want two garbage collectors fighting each other to release a piece of memory. It's too tricky. Yeah, that sounds like a problem I don't want to have. <laughs> Nobody wants to have that problem. And I think also think it, it hints at something you've seen over and over in the community again, is that like especially the combination of Rust and Elixir is actually quite nice. Because I also was thinking, okay, like when would I also not want to use Elixir? And I was thinking, okay, maybe what if I have like a whole bunch of like C code, which maybe is written good or maybe is written badly. And then I, I want now to integrate that into like an existing application. I would be actually quite hesitant to, for example, integrate that C code via NIFs, for example, into my Beam application, because if that C code crashes in a NIF, it brings down the whole VM. And that's like where why Rust is so, why, so it's, it's like this, this love relationship between Elixir and Rust, because like Rust gives you strong guarantees also around failure, right? Like it says, okay, 
I don't really panic and crash unless there's like really something happening out of that world, but I deal with failure gracefully. So, and a whole lot, whole lot of the reasons why, for example, your C code might crash with like, I don't know, like some memory issues, et cetera, like P, all of that is not an issue or not the strongest issue in, in Rust. So again, if you have some existing C code, which maybe is not that well maintained, I would be very careful to like then write the Rust application in Elixir because if that crashes, it's going to bring down your whole VM. Dude, does any of you actually have the experience of like dangling and like mingling and like dealing with C code, old legacy C code? I think, yeah, I think, uh, was it App Signal or uh, I forget, there was, a, there was one package that I was using and their NIF library was broken. But I think App Signal uses Rust. I, I might be uh, wrong, but I, yeah, I did have a lot of trouble debugging what's going wrong. And yeah, it's very hard to rely on um, those things to function well. <laughs> Well, there's that Jiffy library, right? Which I think is written in C. But then, uh, if you know what I'm talking about, Jiffy for JSON, that was kind of like the fastest JSON library we had in Elixir until we had uh, JSON, right? Or JSON, JSON, I guess. So I remember Jiffy was a big deal. I don't, I don't know. People wanted to use it because it was fast, but at the same time, like I felt like they didn't think it was so stable for some weird reason. Uh, that was just a feeling, but I don't think I've seen any words about it like that. To be honest, I can't comment. That was before my time. Like where I, I remember when Jason became popular, but that I was not that into the community to actually have like picked up all of the discussions around it. Wasn't Poison the one people used before? Oh, Poison, yeah, Poison. Yeah, I, I Poison was a oh Poison, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I get confused between Poison and HTTP Poison or something like that. Right, HTTP Poison is just a uh, HTTP client, but po- I think it's it. Am I written on top of Poison at least initially? It's written on top of Hackney, I thought. Oh, no, there you go. I'm wrong. Well, well, I mean, Hackney is like the HTTP client, right? Right, but, right. So sometimes these names are just too complicated for me. <laughs> like They're really complicated to keep track of which one's which. But yeah, and then also now, what's the other one that you can use for HTTP? That's the... Um, Mint? No, not Mint. Um, not Mint. There's another one, a Tesla. That they try to make it so that you can use other backends or something. It's a little bit strange. Yeah, Tesla is mostly uh, optimized around the idea of like really having a module which integrates into an external API. Right. And like isn't this, that experience very streamlined? Isn't there one that starts with F? That's a fast Finch. one. Finch, yes. right. That's yeah. There's a whole bunch of HTTP clients in Elixir. Yeah. It's like crazy. <laughs> but, but I, I know that Elixir, well, some of the people in the Elixir core team prefer Finch. <laughs> But didn't didn't they make a very particular one? Like, if I remember correctly, they had to make a HTTP library because they had to do it just for just for hex, I think, for some reason. Because there's HTTPC that's built into Erlang, right? But for some reason, within Mix, they couldn't use it, and they had to they had to build one from scratch for some reason. I think you know what I'm the, talking about. For example, HTTP Poison and other HTTP clients, they manage the connections like opaque right like that you you don't really care about the http connections like that's that's the thing which like the http clients like to poison so on so take care for you and mint for example doesn't do that like every time you basically do an http request like it it, it creates like a connection and when when you want to manage these connections you need to do that yourself so like it's very deliberately designed to say okay i'm not gonna hide the connection from you like i'm gonna basically manage the uh, expose all of that to you and there are situations where you want to do that and apparently that was like the situation for the hex core team where they said okay we actually do want control over the http and the the, not the, TLS, the um, tcp connection so this is finch was, right was it finch i think, mint. I think it was mint, mint. yeah it was mint because what i remember like i think so if Mint is the one that's kind of bare bones, there's actually another one that's built on top of that one to make it easier, if I remember yeah, correctly. Right. Is that Finch or something? I, what, is, this, is there something where if you want to be in the core team, you have to make an HTTP library or something? I feel like, because most of these are by pretty pretty high-profile guys. There's a lot of HTTP libraries for some reason. I don't know why we were in love with that. But, yeah, I just um, looked it up. Finch is built on top of Mint and Nimble. Mint. Yeah. yeah. And I'm going to put all of that in the show notes. So if you want to check it out, just... Go there. Yeah, I just remember that they had to make an HTTP library for some weird reason, and they couldn't use HTTPC for some other reason. But it, it was it was quite interesting. What else? We're, we're, now we're, we're losing track of the main topic, right? Which is like, why would you? When would you not want to use Elixir? I have I mean, one. So. I have really one, like an example, of like a real world, a working example. So at my one of my previous companies, my last project was solving like an NP 
complex problem. For some weird reason, we were trying to do that in Ruby or Elixir. Uh, it was uh, it was hell to try to do that in either. Right? We ended up I ended up writing a property based test suite for that just to test the correctness of that, and we were like getting like you know ninety ninety five percent at best. It and it just like really showed the lack of correctness that can happen if you are solving a very complex mathematical problem in Elixir. After I left the company, I was taking like a month and a half break. I wrote did the same problem in Haskell, ran the same property-based test suite, and was getting 100% test correction for like double the time, right? So like, you know, running double the number of tests were, were getting the correct correct results. And it, I mean, it just showed that by defining your own types, right, in Haskell, you can catch so many more use cases at compile time itself. And for like NP complex problems, I was like, oh my God, that's crazy. The types actually make such a huge difference. It's crazy. Even if you write Elixir the best way you you think you can, a type language just is a type language. So yeah, I think types are huge. I, I know I was like dabbling into this just, just because we touched on NIFS. I wanted to see if we could use Haskell with Elixir via NIFS. So there's a way to call Haskell using C. And obviously you can make C calls via NIFS and Elixir. So it's been it's been on my mind as soon as I get like a couple months off. I think I'm going to, that's one of the first things I'm going to try to call Haskell with Elixir and think it'll solve like that, at least problems in that domain. But anyway, yeah, the lack of types is uh my point and i think yeah there's a like gleam and other languages as well that we can get to but if, if you're solving an np hard or np complex problem elixir i don't think is a good fit yeah elixir definitely is one of the only languages i use consistently that doesn't have a type and i still wish it did but at the same time if that meant that it's going to be like not as nice as it is i would rather have it typeless because it's just so nice the way it is so, sorry sasha go ahead it's, it's okay I just want to be pedantic. Like, I mean, Elixir has a type system. It's a dynamic type system. It doesn't have a statically type system. <laughs> so, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, maybe like somebody will call us out otherwise. So, but, yeah, types can be very, very helpful in certain complex modeling situations, and I agree with that. Like, there's also like this whole. I'm pretty interested in domain-driven design, and there's like a super awesome book from Scott Bashin on like domain modeling made functional. He's using a sharp in that, and he's like actually like using the type system to map out the problem before he actually writes any kind of code, right? Like he doesn't write any code and just maps out like the I steps it. in the domain, in the, in the process, in the workflow, all like only through types. And only then, like when that basically is done, he starts to actually write the code implementing this. And that's, I feel, a very, very powerful pattern if you have these very complex workflows. And that's something which, Yes, there, there, there were situations where I was really wishing for like more type guarantees in Elixir. That would be so dope. But I mean, as you already said, Adi, we now have Gleam. So maybe we'll, we'll get there at some point where also the integration between Gleam and Elixir becomes very straightforward. I think that would be so cool if you could get all use all of the niceties of Elixir in like your outer layer and then use Gleam in your inner layer where you really want to get these guarantees and want to pretend the world is like is correct and there's no bad data in there. <laughs> and, and then something like like a statically type language is it's just nice to work with. I, mean, I wish we had it's the same I wish we had union types within Elixir. Like Yes, yes. Yeah. Where, especially when they force you to handle the cases like I love Elm. Like I fell in love with Elm because it's like they force you to deal with everything. And I was like, this is so annoying. But then after I did it, I was like, wow, there's really no like runtime errors. Other than like, if you drop, have you guys seen that they actually had a runtime error? The, those guys, is it Red One or something? I forgot who, who works on Elm. So they, they were boasting for like years. They're like, oh, it's been seven years. We had zero runtime errors ever in our Elm application. And then they forgot to, they, there's like a call in Elm where you can like log out, like debug log out something and then crash the program. And so they left that in and then they deployed the app and they finally had a crash. But like the nice part is like, because you have that algebra, like like similar to what Adi was talking about with the, uh, with Haskell, right? When you have strong mathematical guarantees, you can have these very, very strong systems, which kind of goes against Elixir where in Erlang, where it's like, let it crash, if it doesn't work out. It's really an opposite kind of thought process. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build 
relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Yeah, I think both these schools of thought, let's so say, uh, have value. Like Because, I mean, it's nice, like, inside of the application to pretend, okay, there's no bad data here, for example. I'm just going to say, okay, this is a thing, this is a thing, everything is nice. But at the end of the day, this nice program you're writing has to talk with the outside world. The outside world is fucking messy. <laughs> There's all the weird edge cases and all that kind of stuff. That's the funny part, right? Is like for Elm, they have this thing where you can reach out to the other world. You can reach out to JavaScript and that's where you don't know what's going to happen. And since we all have some similarity, some familiarity with Rust, that's the same thing, right? You have, when you're in an with C, you have something called unsafe where you just can't have any guarantees. You know, it's when you control your own world, you can have a very safe system, but that's not the way the world works. The world actually has to interact with each other. But yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And I feel like that's where, like, when you operate with the outside world, that's where, like, this whole let it crash philosophy really, really, really bears its fruits. Like, when you, for example, have managed TCP connections inside of a process, and then, like, I don't know, like, some garbled TCP shit comes in, and you're just, okay, I'm out of here, I'm going to crash, right? Like, and you don't have to model that through, like, types and get crazy about it. That's actually, I think Elm is a good example because, I mean, they deliberately didn't go down some of the rabbit holes of, like, more complex type modeling, like, of, like, type classes and all that thing, which is the thing in Haskell, but, like, which is useful but hard to grasp also. But that means that, for example, JSON and encoding and decoding is really boilerplate in Elm. If you have to write a whole bunch of very boilerplate code to get JSON encoding and decoding running, because you do operate in this pure world where, where everything is nice and specified, and then you need to like really say, okay, like I want to look at like that and that and that and that and that, and then now I need to go with Faria, what if a JSON doesn't encode, and so on and so forth. And I feel like there is that there is like space for both of these schools of thought. Like I said, like if you could combine them, if you can combine, like I said, okay, my, my outer shell of my application is written in something which is just more conveniently, more convenient in these kind of ugly and, and messy situations. But now I'm going to get to my inner part of the application and my outer shell takes care of managing all of that. I, you could kind of say I get best of both worlds to a certain degree. Maybe. <laughs> That's like my dream. I have a dream. So Haskell does have a simpler way to manage that, Some, a, a library called Reflection. You can always use template Haskell as well. But anyway, it's not a Haskell podcast. <laughs> Is Haskell really worth it to, to learn? Like, it's on my list, but it's been dropping down yes. recently. Yes, it's my favorite language. I have Haskell mornings as instead of meditation sometimes. And it, it works. But yeah, let's not get into that. <laughs> you just should pick like a Haskell book at the end of this, like so people can can like pick up Haskell because like that's the main issue with me for Haskell. It's like there's all these other compiler extensions and stuff, and you're like, okay, where the fuck should I get started? <laughs> but then, like I said, let's like not get too deep into that. But that was always my issue. I heard that Bruce said that he was trying to learn Haskell, and he said the first time he tried to run Haskell, or definitely one of the one of the early times, and he seg faulted somehow. Which I heard that once you compile Haskell, it will never seg fault. Something like that. I believe it was Haskell. I heard this. It, it won't seg fault. But he said that the first time he ran it, it seg faulted, which was just, yeah, I mean, he's just bad luck, I guess. I, I know installing it can used to be complex. Now, and I mean, now now there's like a more, um, it, now, now Stack, I think it's a project that's like funded by like all these like big companies. So it's like more stable. But I don't know how many years ago this was. I'm kind of interested to learn to learn and play around with OCaml, though. It seems like a pretty interesting language. Yeah, same there. But again, then I actually talked to somebody who has a fair bit of experience working with OCaml. There's apparently this like religious kind of war around okay, which standard library is like the real deal because like I think from the get go, OCaml didn't really have like a standard library, and then like two different projects came up with like different design philosophy. I, I I'm probably gonna. I'm going to uh, probably saying that like I'm wrongly out there and I'm misremembering some things, but there's also already that kind of thing where you then need to decide like what kind of standard kind of library are you using, and which doesn't help with bringing new people on board. Let's say that. <laughs> yeah, and like one one thing I feel also which qualifies for this whole when should you not maybe use Elixir is when it's just 
easier, which we kind of get got into already, in, to build something in a different language. Some of that reasoning might be types, but you could also, for example, maybe there's like a really well-supported Ruby gem for that particular, maybe external API or whatever, or there's a really well-supported Java thing. And I guess you could say, like, don't reinvent the wheel when there is something out there already helping you to solve this particular problem you have. And like, yes, I mean, I, I enjoy writing Elixir as much as the next guy here on the podcast. But at the end of the day, choose a tool which is right for the job. And maybe that is not Elixir. Maybe that is something else. Maybe there is something already written which makes it a lot more simpler to solve the problem you have. And unless it's like a more academic situation where you say, okay, I deliberately want to build an Elixir because I want to learn about it, then you should probably pick the thing which is most straightforward. Yeah, totally. I got another one based on just my recent experience trying to hire Elixir engineers. It's just, as a startup, it's a lot harder to hire, find experienced Elixir engineers. If you're a startup, you are trying to look for like a productive frameworks. I mean, one of the classic things, I guess, is Ruby on Rails, right? Picking Phoenix would mean it will be a lot harder to hire engineers, or you have to train senior engineers. You have to be willing to do either or. Training engineers is not easy because, you know, you have to make, as a startup, you have to make sure, you know, you get stuff done as well while engineers are getting trained. So it needs extra management and stuff on top of, you know, the time it took to hire people who are either interested or have Elixir experience. So I think that's a I want to say as a, for a company, that might be the biggest reason to not choose Elixir over, say, Ruby on Rails or a framework like that. It probably depends on like your circumstance of saying, okay, do we want to grow quickly because it's like a venture capital thing, right? Or do you want to maybe more grow slowly and ease into the market without a lot of venture capital? Then I guess you could make this choice of saying, hey, let's maybe pick Elixir because it's better for a particular job, but hiring will be slower. But yeah, if you want to grow quickly and get a lot of people on board quickly, then Elixir might not be the first choice. Unless you miraculously, I don't know, like live in a city which has a whole bunch of Elixir developers, which do exist, like, but uh, exception to the rule. <laughs> I kind of find it actually a little bit easier to a certain extent. I mean, especially, I mean, if you know Rails and you're coming to Elixir, I almost think it's kind of easier because like one of the, like, you don't have to find Phoenix plugins necessarily. You could just find Elixir stuff and just hook it in. It's really an interface to your app once you kind of wrap that around your mindset. I think the hardest part for me to really get into Phoenix was like I had all this baggage from Rails that I was like, oh, I have to find a Phoenix plugin to do this. It's, no, it's, you just can roll it yourself. Like it's just functions. Just stick a function in there. You could do it. Like when you break it down, it's actually really simple. For Rails, there's just so much magic here and there. Things getting generated like out of nowhere. But with Elixir, it's like, well, the request comes in to the router. You can see all the plugs. It's very clear. You can look in the endpoint. You can look in your router. You can see the the con uh, going through the, your, your controller or your live view. It's just, to me, it's super straightforward once you start to break it down. And like initially, like I was like surprised, like how does this use with like use like a, a web comma like a view? But then you would look at what using is once you know that use is using using. You can say, oh, it's just importing in this and doing that. It's actually really simple. And like, just to make that clear, like I'm, I'm personally not a big believer of this. Of this, okay, hiring for Elixir is hard, but if you want to hire quickly, like really quickly, a lot of people, then I do think that like that is harder to do on Elixir and, and Phoenix than compared to Ruby on Rails. But I have yet worked both my recent, my, my current employer and the one before that were like more small scale startups with not any kind of venture capital on there. So we've got like 50, 60 people, right? Like grow, growing slowly. And in that context, having Elixir on our stack was actually beneficial to hiring because you could just put that position out there. And if you didn't have this huge pressure of having to hire somebody, I don't know, like next week, then people came to you. Like people came to us because we were having Elixir jobs and people wanted to work with Elixir, but that's like, it's more of a slow dribble or a constant slow dribble. And there's also like a kind of pre-selection happening with people who are interested in Elixir. Those tend just, I'm not sure why, but those tend to be more experienced developers from my experience. So you do kind of get people interested on the stack already. And you don't even have to do that much of like work. I don't know, like have putting it out on LinkedIn and getting a whole bunch of like automatically applied uh, CVs and kind of kind of that stuff. So if you are in that situation, Elixir can actually help you with hiring if you don't have this pressure of having to hire a lot of people. And then, 
yes, I agree. Um, and I do feel that there's a lot of design thinking which went into Phoenix and Elixir and making it powerful, but kind of easy to grasp when you're ready to look beyond the, the shiny surface, so to speak. And in yeah, Rails, it's more, there's a lot more magic going on, let's say that. And it kind of can, can make things hard to grasp from time to time. All right now, I'm, I'm kind of bringing up this. So like I have this uh, very junior developer who uh, sadly, he just hasn't had like, he hasn't had a very good education in my opinion, in terms of like his schooling. And, and I don't think it's his fault, right? It's just some schools are just not very good, right? I think he went to school in the Philippines. He learned very basic database stuff. He doesn't really know too much about how to do joins, this kind of thing. But he's a whiz with design. Like I can just give him a design. He can whip it up with JavaScript and CSS and all this kind of stuff. So I'm trying to, like you told me before, this is my dream is to be a full stack developer. But nobody ever really gave him a chance, right? So I've been trying to teach him. And it's been a very slow process. But what I can see is that like the way that he approaches it is he thinks it's very complicated because it's a brand new programming language, right? He he's not used to like piping and that yet yeah, we're doing transformations, right? So like he's passing a chain set in and he's just thinking that, oh, I pass it in, so it's gonna be updated automatically. No, no, you have to catch it and then you can keep using it, right? You have a pipeline going on or else you're not gonna have the right one. But once I kind of show him like this is how this works and like just take a step back and like these things are happening and he's like like he's expecting it to be very complicated because just the language to him is so foreign. But in the end, it's like, wow, actually that is really simple. And I was like, yeah, I told you it's simple because I've been I've been a little bit frustrated with him and I'm like, this is so simple. Like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you get it? And that is not the right mentality to have, right? And so I kind of took a step back and said, listen, not everybody has been like you and had a okay background and, and had took some time to learn all this stuff, right? And so I'd step back and said, let's think about this. Let's walk through this. This is how this thing works. And then once I explained to him, he's like, wow, this is actually really simple. Yeah, it's really simple. That's why like, it's very, just don't overcomplicate it. Just think about it step by step, right? Follow the request, follow the stuff. It's not as complicated as you think. To me, that's also like a really good uh, indicator of well-written code. Like when you like look at something from the surface and think, okay, oh, it's probably going to be complex. And then you dive in and each step, it's kind of nearly obvious, right? Like, oh, of course this happens here. Of course this happens here. And like next thing, ah, oh, yeah, yes, that makes sense. This is, and there's like this XKCD. I'm not sure if you know, if you know XKCD was XKCD of like a code quality metric. What the fuck's per minute? <laughs> and then the lower the better, right? <laughs> so it's like the, the inverse of that kind of. Yeah. There's one more point I want to bring up since we just talked about like hiring and onboarding stuff is I think Elixir engineers, again, just, uh, I, I had a very hard time hiring. We hired three engineers in last month and a half. We're trying to get fourth. And people with Elixir experience just are also significantly more expensive than same similar levels of like Rails experience. It's like more, there's the supply, the demand to supply ratio right? And Elixir is a lot higher. Like, uh, I know when I was at Community before this, we were, we were suffering the same problems. It was it took us a while to hire someone with Elixir experience. And as a company, we just didn't have the bandwidth to train people, right? So anyway, yeah, it's people, people, I mean, I would I want to say 20 or 25% higher is a salary that Elixir people expect compared to like, like a, even like a .NET engineer or a Rails engineer in the same, in like a similar skill set and experience level, just according to my experience. Are you hiring locally though? Is it, or are you hiring remotely? Remote, yes. Okay, because like, like I said, like, both places where I've been working has also been hiring remotely and like across Europe and even some have some colleagues from the States. And then I, we didn't have that problem yet, let's say that. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, like my previous, my previous employer, we had like somebody from, from, from Ireland, somebody from Greece. Like there was this uh, thing about having to hire people who reside in the you know, Euro, Europe simply because we were dealing with like confidential patient data. And then it's just due to law stuff like we couldn't really hire people from outside of Europe because there are some implications about technically people could be forced to give access, all the kind of stuff. Right. Um, but yeah, like then with, with that baseline, it was to basically put it out there, post it on some basic forums and just wait and people will come to you. That was our experience. But again, we didn't want to hire, I don't know, like five people in two months. We were like hiring two people in like half a year. Right. So right. It's, it's a different scenario. Yeah, totally. I, I think you're right about the speed. Like since, like I said, we're hiring four people in like less than two months like that did change things. But yeah, I mean, like I still just as a, 
even as a hindsight, like the reason why I picked Elixir like three months ago was because I was extremely productive in Elixir. If I would have picked like Ruby on Rails and easily hired those four people faster, we would have done a lot less net work. So I'm not saying that picking Elixir was wrong in our case, but it's just uh, something to consider if you're not already like as like the founding engineer, like really like sold on Elixir. If you don't have like an Elixir expert in-house, it doesn't, it's not worth learning Elixir and trying to hire Elixir people. Yeah, yeah. I can certainly see why why that would be a bad choice then. And again, that's where you need to step back, right? Like if you're the Elixir expert, I think you should bring people who want to learn it and then you just kind of guide them and try to like give them simpler problems to do. Like that's what I usually do is because over here, like... If you don't do Java, you don't do C, you don't do JavaScript, people don't want to touch it, right? For the most part. And so I find people who are inquisitive and then I kind of give them the simple stuff. Like if to get very simple Phoenix app, you don't need to know anything about OTP. And yeah. so like, I just kind of come in and say, let me show you how this thing works. Let me show you all this kind of stuff. And then I kind of guide them through and then let them work on it and come back and help them out. No, 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 not like this. Try it like this. Or this is a cool idea or this kind of stuff. That's the better way to do it. If you can, of course, but I understand startup is tricky <laughs> you have a little bit of time no i think that's very that's perfectly said alan like i think that that was like the cost we paid instead of like trying to find an elixir expert for a month let's hire someone who's super interested in elixir and get them on boarded quickly from on the basics and that's what happened like we have like three engineers and all of them are like to a place where they can like start doing projects you know within a month also huge shout out to elixir school that was like the biggest biggest resource <laughs> we like heavily relied on that i still use elixir school right now Nice. Yeah, I mean, because you don't have to do everything all the time, right? I never really use Pool Boy, but sometimes I'm like, well, I think I need a pooling thing, and then let me look up Pool Boy because I don't have to use it by myself. But so, never be afraid, right? Like, there's a lot of people who, yeah, I mean, you just never do it. Like reading, reading from standard in. Like, I failed a programming test with Elixir because the the test was reading from standard in. I'm like, I never read from standard in. What the, I don't know how to even do that. <laughs> I'd look it up and I was still getting it wrong. And and I think that's okay, right? It doesn't mean you're a bad developer. It just means like it's just a totally new thing for you. And that's okay. Yeah, as long as you're willing like to step back and say, hey, I, I don't know this. Let me look it up. Let me check it out. Let me learn it. I think that's very valuable and important in that line of work because we you literally can't know it all. It's just too much. It's impossible. And especially I'm then, trying. I'm trying my best. <laughs> well, don't, tell me when you're finished, Alan. <laughs> but you like to, to to come back to the hiring. It's the same there. Like if you hire people who are interested, but are also willing to say, like, yes, I, I don't feel comfortable doing this at this point, and let me, I don't know, give me like two more weeks checking this out. Then that's very valuable in of itself, regardless of whatever the background of that particular developer is or isn't. I'd like to, to circle back to something I said earlier of like the integration of like where we with like libraries. It's that's kind of interesting now because I, I'm a previous employer where I, I like I said I don't, I don't work there anymore, but I, a good friend of mine is still working there, and he has actually told me that like I mean they hired a whole bunch of Ruby developers interested in Elixir. Like most of the people who started there were Ruby developers interested in Elixir, and they've now gotten to a point where they, they it's not even officially spelled out. But it's like this, this silent agreement that like new stuff and new services, because they're doing microservices, are being done in Elixir, unless there's a really good reason to write it in Ruby. For example, when there is like uh, an existing gem, which makes it easier. It was not like a thing which was dictated from management up top. So we had like all these people doing Ruby, coming in Ruby, being very experienced and knowledgeable about Ruby. And now they like all kind of slowly converted of like, hey, Elixir is just helps us doing this kind of work quicker and simpler. So yeah, it's kind of the opposite of what we are allowed to do with the podcast, but I do feel that choosing choosing the right tool for the job, even if you have a lot of knowledge and even if you have a lot of commitment to a certain language, is most of the time the better choice. So for example, I'm not sure what you're doing with your startup, Adi, but if you say, for example, okay, maybe we, we should have chosen Ruby, and if that would have been appropriate to the problem, yeah, why not, right? Like, if, if it helps you solve the problem quicker and easier and hire people quicker and easier, and that is the kind of, like, constraints you're operating then, then I feel it would be dishonest, that it's really dishonest to say, hey, you should use Elixir because it's so great. Maybe for that particular problem, it's not. And that particular problem might not be technical, right? Like, because we don't always operate purely inside of technical constraints. We also operate inside of social constraints and business constraints and all the kind of stuff, which... If, even if we don't like it, have an impact on our work. <laughs> okay, any, any anything else where you might not want to use Elixir to be like cover the bases? I do want to. I have like one 
half a point, I guess. So this is like, I think just a, a point about Elixir's metaprogramming coming from like, you know, Ruby where metaprogramming feels like very accessible, right? It's easy to write code that doesn't quote unquote break in metaprogramming. And Elixir having constraints because metaprogram is, is purely compile time in Elixir, right? And that introduces certain constraints, which I think it's like at times hard to debug too, right? Like, uh, for example, if you write like a, a recursive macro, <laughs> I don't know why you want to do that, but if you write a recursive macro, you're, you're in an infinite loop no matter what you do. And stuff like that is not very obvious coming from like a Ruby background. So it that part, I think, took me a while. And yeah, I don't know if this is like a, it's too specific, but I think the metaprogram and Elixir, even though they try their best for to let developers not break something, I think it feels harder than Ruby. Right, even though it's it's more deterministic. I, I totally get what you're saying, but I yeah. would pose a counter question: Is it good that it's so accessible I like, in Ruby? Ex- <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it is good. Right, I think it is good, but it does come in your way, right? Sometimes, like, yeah, I think I had this really weird experience, right? You know, like, uh, you cannot, we, like I said, you cannot call recursive macros, even if you put like if statements inside the quoted blocks, because it's all compile time, right? Everything gets expanded compile time, and it's just been infinite loop. But there was this one case where I was able to call macros recursively inside of uh, an ecto schema macro because it was being evaluated lazily. And I and stuff like that is just like very, it's mind boggling to me. It's just like, because you're adding a completely new layer of compile time and pre-compile time, it, and whereas in Ruby, it's very straightforward, right? Anyway, the complexity of metaprogramming is a lot higher. There's more layers to it in Elixir, but and which, why, which is why it feels a lot less accessible. But like you said, Sasha, it might be a good thing. <laughs> I think it's a, but it's a worthwhile discussion to have. And I, I was, I'm not kind of to put perspectives on that. I'm ambivalent about it because some of that stuff is hard then to grasp also. Like, and, and I personally am very fond of like the capabilities of macros and I've written my fair share of macros, but it's then always also always the thing, okay, what if somebody else needs to maintain this now and they are just not as fluent in macros as you are? And especially when you then get to, I don't know, AST modification and transformation where you like really get into the the, 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 the weird arcane shit, so to speak, uh, then, then it becomes really hard to follow. On the other hand, I feel like the metaprogramming in Ruby kind of is like on the other side of that spectrum a bit too extreme because it is so accessible it's like this hammer and every fucking everything is a nail and that's also not great so i'm not sure if elixir is like on the right has it has, has to stroke, stroke, stroke strike the right point there or if it's also too arcane i'm not sure yeah. but it can swing either way right yeah Sasha, you're missing something important that just came to my mind if you want to do method missing you probably shouldn't use elixir isn't that right yeah you should i'm just mm-hmm. gonna leave it at that <laughs> I, I think Adi missed that conversation. I was here. I was here. <laughs> oh, were you here? I can't remember if you were here or not. You were here. Yeah, it was just the previous podcast. Yep. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry, it's been a long week. <laughs> yeah. Like, to, to reiterate on that, like Alan is hinting something we discussed last week, and there is actually a way to do method missing elixir, but you just just don't don't. You can Google it if you want to, but I'm not gonna put it in the show notes. <laughs> I'm just no, but you I, share it to us after the show, and I'm yeah, very happy. Yeah, it's it queued like, up on my browser. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just like don't. It's also slow and ugly, and just don't. Yeah. Okay. Nice. I think I, f- I feel like we kind of got it covered. Like I've, I'm trying to think of like another situation which is like obvious, but I guess it boils down to like choose the right tool for the job, and there are just jobs where this is not very good at like UI programming, number crunching, complex modeling, and complex integration where other stuff might help you. All that kind of all these are kind of situations where you might want to choose something else. But vice versa, there are a lot of situations where Elixir is a good tool for the job. And I feel like especially a lot of the things we solve nowadays in backend development and server programming, that's where the beam really helps you solve problems we have in our day-to-day work. So yeah, with that. But to be honest though, sorry to cut you off, but this in my head is, I think the beam is more valuable than Elixir itself. Yeah, what the beam can do, I think, is something that's much more powerful. Like it's crazy the work you can throw at it and what people are doing with it nowadays. Like we're talking about Erlang, we're talking about Elixir, we're talking about these languages. They're just languages that compile down to to run on the beam, right? There's something about the beam rather than the Elixir language itself that really gives it some power. Like we can do like I don't know pattern matching in really interesting ways, especially the 
the binary pattern matching, you can run so many processes on this thing and it just runs, right? It'll never really like stop because running out of stuff, right? but it, it'll just keep chugging along. Even if it's slower, it'll still keep chugging along with all the work it's doing. It's insane what the Beam can do. Yeah, it thinks there's like a nice language, but the Beam makes it special. The Beam is like really what, what, what sets it apart from our nice languages out there. Like Elixir is nice to use, and the Beam is really what is for superpower, <laughs> which is like under the hood. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Okay, then I'm going to transition us to picks. And Adi, I want a Haskell pick. Do it. Cool, yeah. Let me remember. So the, the two Haskell books that I really liked was uh, this one called Real World Haskell. And second one was Learn You a Haskell for Great Good. And I think both are free. So I would check those out. And if if you're like, if the book feels a little jarring, right? Like you go through initial chapters, types and stuff, and you want to just like apply your Haskell skills, newly learned Haskell skills somewhere, I would recommend, let me find it. It's called, I think it's called Write You a Haskell. So I think you basically write a compiler in Haskell and, and, and uh, for an imperative language. I enjoyed that project thoroughly. So wait, it's called Implementing JIT Compiled Language in Haskell and LLVM. It's actually very small. It, it doesn't, it's a small tutorial. It will take you like a, couple hours uh nah maybe three hours <laughs> so once you learn the basics that's a great place to go and just like also learn how to write a programming language again the links will be in the show notes nice i actually just looked it up and it's like there is a website for learn your haskell for greater good but it's, apparently it's down oh weird i guess we're gonna link a github repository then because it's like publicly available on github but yeah weird i hope so <laughs> uh okay alan what are your picks some more rust books I do have some more Rust stuff, but I haven't gotten to it yet. So I'm going to pick another one. There's this testing live view course that I just bought today. And I gave it to the the new guy to take a look at. And I think it's pretty okay. I only watched the first one or two videos so far. I think it's 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 okay, but I want to watch more because he, but the nice part is that he does go over like how to how to test your your stuff, like how to test your live view stuff, even with like the uploads and all that kind of stuff. It seems pretty in depth about testing live views, and that's something I want to get better at. I I just feel like the testing for for controllers and everything else is very very straightforward, but live views are not as straightforward. And I'm hoping that he answers the question that we all have, which is how do you test your JavaScript hooks? I I'm looking to see if he has an answer for that one. We're all looking for that. But yeah, that's kind of my pick for right now. Nice. I think we actually did talk about this briefly in the past episode. But yeah. Um, okay, my picks this week, as I already mentioned to you earlier, Adi and Ellen, I'm still in parental leave. Next week is going to be the next week where I finally start working again. We mixed feelings about that. But so I, I didn't do anything related to programming at all. So I'm just going to nerd out completely in my picks today. And I'm going to pick a role-playing game, which I've been enjoying very much. And like not a video role-playing game, but a tabletop role-playing game. Wait, are you supposed to be with your family during this time? Yes, I you're am. Playing, I mean, no, you're playing games instead of with your family yeah. during this time? I could also pick some children, book, children books if you want me to. Like, <laughs> I, want a, I, I want a pop-up book. <laughs> Next week, I'm going to give you like a pop-up book pick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so yeah, it's a role-playing game and it's called Blades in the Dark. And it's by John Harper. And it's like, just let me like read, read out the, like, the, the catchphrase. A tabletop role-playing game about a crew of daring scoundrels seeking their fortunes on the haunted streets of an industrial fantasy city. And it's of the school of thought of like um, more narrative-driven games because like there's also like D&D, which is probably the tabletop role-playing game everybody knows. But D&D is actually coming from war games originally. That's where it comes from. So it's more focused on like actually to some degree to being like a combat simulator, if you so to speak, right? And narrative games are more around, okay, let's, let, let's create some rules which help you tell a cool story. And they're usually very specifically designed for a certain kind of story. And this game is specifically designed for telling a story about a group of criminals in like a fantasy industrial gate city doing heists. So there's like very specific mechanics to 
do heist stuff with like flashbacks and all that kind of stuff. So I'm very, very fond of it. Um, and if that is not really your forte, but like you, you like the idea of narrative-driven games, I uh, got another one, which is Band of Blades. And Band of Blades is actually based on Blades in the Dark, but this one is a game about like a group of mercenaries, Legion, which frantically are running away after a lost battle from the armies of the undead, which are sitting at their neck. And the cool thing about Band of Blades is, is that it's like a, it has a built-in campaign. Because usually in tabletop role-playing games, you just make up a story as you go, or like you have something pre-planned or like something pre-written. And Band of Blades is like specifically also designed for a certain campaign. You play this campaign and it's part of the book. And that's like just something I've not yet seen in every other role-playing game do. So it's pretty, pretty cool. It's basically playing like you play like a series around, okay, how do these band of mercenaries get to Skydecker Keep? And there's like the final battle between humanity and the forces of evil. And that's like what you play out and it's designed for that. And it's pretty, like, it's, it's a cool thing. It's like a, it's something I've, like I said, not seen that often yet. So yeah, those are my picks for a week. Okay, folks, then thank you for listening to this. Thank you for the great discussion, Alan Adi. And tune in next time when we have another episode of Elixir Mix. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.